Welcome to the Planet Storytime podcast, where we use the power of our imaginations to create pictures in our minds for some of the best stories ever told. I'm your host, Thomas Mitchell. Today, we bring you our very first Stellar Top 5 episode, where we feature our most popular shows over the last three months. Here is our Top 5. Coming in at number five is The Queen Bee by the Brothers Grimm. At number four, How the Camel Got Its Hump by Rudyard Kipling. Coming in at number three is The Tale of the Pumpkin House by T.M. Gannam. At number two is another story by T.M. Gannam, Crow and Beetle. And coming in at number one, The Tale of Peter Rabbit by Beatrix Potter. We've included chapter markers so you can pick your favorite stories more easily. Now, if you can, take a deep breath in and hold it. And let it out. Now, we're ready for today's stories. Remember to see the pictures in your head as you listen to the stories. We hope you enjoy it. The Queen Bee Two king's sons once started to seek adventures and fell into a wild, reckless way of living and gave up all thoughts of going home again. Their third and youngest brother, who was called Whitling and had remained behind, started off to seek them, and when at last he found them, they jeered at his simplicity in thinking that he could make his way in the world while they, who were so much cleverer, were unsuccessful. But they all three went on together until they came to an anthill, which the two eldest brothers wished to stir up, that they might see the little ants hurry about in their fright and carrying off their eggs. But Whitling said, Leave the little creatures alone. I will not suffer them to be disturbed. And they went on further until they came to a lake, where a number of ducks were swimming about. The two eldest brothers wanted to catch a couple and cook them, but Whitling would not allow it, and said, Leave the little creatures alone. I will not suffer them to be killed. And then they came to a bee's nest in a tree, and there was so much honey in it that it overflowed and ran down the trunk. The two eldest brothers then wanted to make a fire beneath the tree that the bees might be stifled by the smoke, and then they could get at the honey. But Whitling prevented them, saying, Leave the little creatures alone. I will not suffer them to be stifled. At last the three brothers came to a castle, where there were in the stables many horses standing, all of stone, and the brothers went through all the rooms until they came to a door at the end, secured with three locks, and in the middle of the door a small opening through which they could look into the room and they saw a little grey-haired man sitting at a table. They called out to him once, twice, and he did not hear. But at the third time he got up, undid the locks, and came out. Without speaking a word, he led them to a table loaded with all sorts of good things, and when they had eaten and drunk, he showed to each his bedchamber. The next morning the little grey man came to the eldest brother, and beckoning him, brought him to a table of stone, on which were written three things directing by what means the castle could be delivered from its enchantment. The first thing was that in the wood, under the moss, lay the pearls belonging to the princess, a thousand in number, and they were to be sought for and collected. And if he who should undertake the task had not finished it by sunset, if but one pearl were missing, he must be turned to stone. So the eldest brother went out and searched all day. But at the end of it, he had only found one hundred. Just as was said on the table of stone came to pass, and he was turned into stone. 
The second brother undertook the adventure next day, but it fared with him no better than with the first. He found two hundred pearls and was turned into stone. And so at last it was Whitling's turn, and he began to search in the moss. But it was a very tedious business to find the pearls, and he grew so out of heart that he sat down on a stone and began to weep. As he was sitting thus, up came the ant king with five thousand ants, whose lives had been saved through Whitling's pity. And it was not very long before the little insects had collected all the pearls and put them in a heap. Now the second thing ordered by the table of stone was to get the key of the princess's sleeping chamber out of the lake. And when Whitling came to the lake, the ducks whose lives he had saved came swimming and dived below and brought up the key from the bottom. The third thing that had to be done was the most difficult, and that was to choose out the youngest and loveliest of the three princesses as they lay sleeping. All bore a perfect resemblance each to the other, and only differed in this. That before they went to sleep, each one had eaten a different sweetmeat. The eldest a piece of sugar, the second a little syrup, and the third a spoonful of honey. Now the queen bee of those bees that Whitling had protected from the fire came at this moment, and trying the lips of all three, settled on those of the one that had eaten honey. And so it was that the king's son knew which to choose. Then the spell was broken. Every one awoke from stony sleep and took their right form again. And Whitling married the youngest and loveliest princess and became king after her father's death. But his two brothers, who thought they were so special, were quite humbled. How the Camel Got His Hump by Rudyard Kipling this tale tells us how the camel got his big hump. In the beginning of years, when the world was so new and all, and the animals were just beginning to work for the human, there was a camel, and he lived in the middle of a howling desert because he did not want to work. And besides, he was a howler himself. So he ate sticks and thorns and tamarisks and milkweed and prickles, most excruciatingly idle. And when anybody spoke to him, he said, Humph, just humph, and no more. Presently, the horse came to him on Monday morning with a saddle on his back and a bit in his mouth and said, Camel, oh camel, come out and trot like the rest of us. Humph, said the camel, and the horse went away and told the human. Presently, the dog came to him with a stick in his mouth and said, Camel, oh camel, come and fetch and carry like the rest of us. Humph, said the camel, and the dog went away and told the human. Presently, the ox came to him with the yoke on his neck and said, Camel, camel, come and plow like the rest of us. Humph, said the camel, and the ox went away and told the human. At the end of the day, the human called the horse and the dog and the ox together and said, Three, oh three, I'm very sorry for you, with the world so new and all, but that humph thing in the desert can't work, or he would have been here by now. So I am going to leave him alone, and you must work double time to make up for it. That made the three very angry, with the world so new and all, and they held a palaver, and an indaba, and a pukayat, and a powwow on the edge of the desert, and the camel came chewing milkweed most excruciating idle, and laughed at them. Then he said, Humph, and went away again. We'll be right back. Hey parents! Yeah, you! Are you looking for a podcast your kids will really love? Well, we made one just for you! And for us! 
As genuine, all-natural kids ourselves, we know what makes a fun and interesting podcast. So we decided to make it ourselves. Every show is packed with interviews, stories, and on-the-ground reporting. We have interviewed everyone from scientists to Grammy Award-winning musicians to NFL quarterbacks. Listen to Wild Interest wherever you get your podcasts. Presently, there came along the genie in charge of all deserts, rolling in a cloud of dust. Genies always travel that way because it is magic. And he stopped to Polliver and Powwow with the three. Genie of all deserts, said the horse, is it right for anyone to be idle with the world so new and all? Certainly not, said the genie. Well, there's a thing in the middle of your howling desert, and he's a howler himself, with a long neck and long legs, and he hasn't done a stroke of work since Monday morning. He won't trot. Whew, said the genie, whistling. That's my camel for all the gold in Arabia. What does he say about it? He says, Humph, said the dog, and he won't fetch and carry. Does he say anything else? Only humph, and he won't plow, said the ox. Very good, said the genie. I'll humph him if you will kindly wait a minute. The genie rolled himself up in his dust cloak and took a bearing across the desert and found the camel most excruciatingly idle, looking at his own reflection in a pool of water. My long and bubbling friend, what's this I hear of you doing no work with the world so new and all? Humph, said the camel. The genie sat down with his chin in his hand and began to think a great magic while the camel looked at his own reflection in the pool of water. You've given the three extra work ever since Monday morning, all on account of your scruciating idleness. And he went on thinking magics with his chin in his hand. Humph, said the camel. I shouldn't say that again if I were you, said the genie. You might say it once too often. Bubbles, I want you to work. And the camel said, Humph, again. But no sooner had he said it than he saw his back that he was so proud of, puffing up and puffing up into a great big lolloping humph. Do you see that? said the genie. That's your very own humph that you've brought upon your very own self by not working. Today is Thursday, and you've done no work since Monday, when the work began. Now you are going to work. How can I, said the camel, with this humph on my back? That's made a purpose, said the genie. All because you missed those three days. You'll be able to work now for three days without eating, because you can live on your humph. And don't you ever say I never did anything for you. Come out of the desert and go to the three and behave. Humph yourself. And the camel humphed himself, humph and all, and went away to join the three. And from that day to this, the camel always wears a hump. We call it a hump now, not to hurt his feelings. But he has never yet caught up with the other three days that he missed at the beginning of the world. And he has never yet learned how to behave. And now, a sing-songy poem. The camel's hump is an ugly lump, which well you may see at the zoo. But uglier yet is the hump we get from having too little to do. Our kiddies and grown-ups too, ooh, ooh, if we haven't enough, 
to do. Ooh, ooh, we get the hump, camellias hump, the hump that is black and blue. We climb out of bed with a frowsy head and a snarly, yarly voice. We shiver and scowl and we grunt and we growl at our bath and our boots and our toys. There ought to be a corner for me and I know there is one for you. When we get the hump, camellias hump, the hump that is black and blue. The cure for this ill is not to sit still or frowse with a book by the fire, but to take a large hoe and a shovel also and dig till you gently perspire. And then you will find the sun and the wind and the genie of the garden too have lifted the hump. The horrible hump, the hump that is black and blue. I get it as well as you, ooh, ooh, if I haven't enough to do. Ooh, ooh, we all get hump, camellias hump, kiddies and grown-ups too. The Tale of the Pumpkin House by T.M. Gannam This is the tale of the pumpkin house on All Hallows' Eve by the towers in the grove and how you just never know about this spectacular world, especially on Halloween. Oh, and how we must take good care and stand tall in our fright. In fact, Prepare for a fright now, dear reader, listener, or otherwise diviner, for this tale may raise you to a higher pitch, but you must suffer the sharps and flats to get there. If you're still with me, let us to the beginning. The pumpkin house rested in a handsome neighborhood of several blocks, Sixty houses stacked of grand, mostly red Victorians, each of its own special character. Now, if you're not familiar with the Victorian-style homes, let me try to describe them to you. They are tall and stout and charming, with frank but stately front porches, with features like arched windows, slate roofs, sharp gables, and spires, some even dressed with turrets and towers. Now, while the pumpkin house sat in the middle of the neighborhood, it stood apart from the rest of the homes, for it was of a different look. It drew a stark contrast with its orange brick and ivy, giving it the look of a pumpkin. It featured a proud tower in the northeast corner, peaked by a rooster vane with ivy traveling all across the side and the front of the house, from west to east, to catch the morning sun. No one seemed to be sure, but it surely seemed so, that houses, with their unique personalities, think, feel, and communicate, just like the rest of us humans, except that they do it in the way houses do. On this particular block of Mountjoy Avenue, the pumpkin house, which was nestled between its red brick neighbors, had to suffer jokes, snickers, and teasing of every like and sort, because it was so different from the other houses. Whoever heard of orange brick? The other houses would say. Look at that scraggly, shaggy ivy, like a messy haircut. And worse. Despite their cruelty, the pumpkin house stood proudly with general content because it did so love its family, who absolutely adored, not to mention were quite proud of residing in the pumpkin house at good old 1031 Mountjoy Avenue, along with its eight cats that helped protect the grounds. First was K.T., who kept order. Raven, who was most often misbehaving, found opportunity. Jack was of surveillance, 
Minnie covered the details. Sam, well, Sam needed to rest most times. Gracie managed the middle ground. Cuddles, the most rugged of the bunch, was the tailless. And Boss, she called the shots. Yes, between the kitty cats and the sweet human family with the mama and the pops and the kiddos one too, the pumpkin house had all the love it needed. Little did it know it would receive much more. But as things go in this world, it often takes great difficulty to make for great joy. And that is truly where our story begins. Now the pumpkin house and the surrounding neighborhood sat astride the towers in the grove which stood within a long rectangular wood interspersed with gazebos of every color and diversity punctuated by long tall towers that propped up the sides and ends along a loose perimeter of the lush acreage. Legend had long told of goblins, ghouls, ghosts, and witches that lived inside these towers and placed a haunt in the grove. Though it appeared to be only legend, as on the surface, no one would have known the otherwise. For this grove of towers was such a lovely place that the wee town with all its humans and animal creatures and the like ever so fully engaged with a languid bliss the beauty of this parkland shared by every single one. How were they to realize the impending haunt that lurked behind the curtains of their awareness? They could not. That is, until the curtains finally opened in the year 1897, when the haunt became known. This All Hallows' Eve began like any other, when at the spot of sunset, still the grey light of dusk, the trick-or-treaters began bobbing up and down the wide avenue of Mountjoy, visiting each and every bold dwelling in hunt for the best candy the denizens of the grove had to offer, while the band of eight cats settled into maps, seeding the evening to the curiously peculiar humans. The trick-or-treating was at a steady hum when a sudden, terrifying splash of spookiness and horror with a blazing horn of siren fire. The goblins, ghouls, ghosts, and witches sprayed the trick-or-treaters with pokes and howls, spits and screeches, horrifying the children and their grown-ups. Running to and from every direction, the poor people of the towers and the grove found themselves in a fiasco of frenzy of which they had never known. The houses of Mountjoy Avenue sat powerless as they watched the wretched scene play out before them. Their beloved caretakers and their sweet children who came home to them each and every day were being frightened to the end of their very wits, and there was nothing they could do to stop it. Indeed, the pumpkin house's reaction was no different, and perhaps due to having known mistreatment, felt even more powerfully the pain of fear that their human friends were suffering. For certain, the pumpkin house had never felt so compelled to right a wrong, and the energy that came with this desire began to swell so much that the handsome house began to glow like a fierce and noble jack-o'-lantern, lighting up the entire block. And suddenly, in the midst of the neighbors scrambling everywhere for some kind of cover to find relief from the ornery rascal goblins, ghouls, ghosts, and witches who were wreaking such havoc, the lustrous ivy that was spread all across the pumpkin house began to move and swirl and take a life of its own. The ivy began to release its clench and lift away from the brick and extend upward and out as if it was stretching to the sky and seas after waking up from a long sleep. Somehow, instinctively, 
the spindly, outstretched ivy extended like tendrils and began waving, tickling, and swatting away with their leafy shoots at the now-alarmed sundry goblins, ghouls, ghosts, and witches, stunning them into their own fright and forcing them to run and scramble through the viney swishing and swooshing until they fell back in full retreat to the towers in the grove. It was then incomprehensibly still and silent. The people of the neighborhood caught their collective breath and looked at each other as if they couldn't believe what had just transpired. Then everyone seemed to turn to the pumpkin house, and the impossibly long vines settled back into a broad hug around the orange brick. In fact, there was one moment when every eye in the neighborhood was cast upon it, including all the houses up and down Mount Joy. Even the moms and the pops and the kids one too looked up at it from the front porch. The humble home seemed to look down and some say it drew a blush for just a flash. But before anyone could even say a word, The goblins, ghouls, ghosts, and witches returned to their squealing rampage and descended upon the pumpkin house with all sundry scissor and shear, primed to begin hacking and slicing the heroic vines. The ivy jumped back awake, but winced with a sharp snip to one of its wisps. The neighborhood, the humans and houses alike, took a giant gasp, and the band of eight cats that had at last shaken off their naps, shot a collective stare to one another and jumped too. Boss called the shot with a mighty meow, which some have translated as, Protect our pumpkin! And the band of eight felines flew on and around the viney schools, unleashing a cacophony of kitty bedlam aimed at the dastardly goblins, ghouls, ghosts, and witches. Cuttles, unencumbered by tail, flexed her muscles against the rascal mob and began going after their sharp cutting tools. Gracie focused on the center of the wicked troop with her snarls and scratches. Sam yawned obnoxiously in their faces. Minnie ensured their agitation with her whiskers, paws, and claws. Jack surveyed the scene and checked for every last one of the spirit scoundrels. KT kept them unto their business until the job was fully rendered, and then indeed, it was done. The kitty cats successfully terrorized the goblins, ghouls, ghosts, and witches so thoroughly that despite their ready blades, they could shave no more of the pumpkin house's grizzled green whiskers. The spooky rascals were forced into retreat again, and this time, for good, shutting themselves back in the towers, never to return. The people of this grove of towers caught their breath again and returned their stare to the pumpkin house. The band of eight cats, already in some form of repose, looked put out, but content. The pumpkin house, feeling all eyes upon it once again, seemed to tip an ivy stalk near the top of its tower, as if acknowledging their stunned appreciation. No one ever looked at the pumpkin house quite the same again, and the towers in the grove stayed happily quiet forever and evermore. The End The Crow and the Beetle by T.M. Gannam In a thick and thriving wood, abound with creatures of all variety, lived a certain crow and beetle with a rather peculiar relationship. If it were up to the crow, there wouldn't be any relationship at all, except for that of dinner and diner. 
The beetle would be the dinner, and the crow would be the diner. If it were up to the beetle, there wouldn't be any relationship at all either, other than, Hello there, very well, and have a good day. But you see, the crow had a special taste for beetle creatures, and so desired to have this particular beetle for either breakfast, lunch, or dinner. Not that the crow couldn't find other beetles for its dining needs, but this particular beetle posed a rather remarkable challenge. You see, this beetle was of a certain splendid cleverness that made it quite difficult to be taken for food. No, it was not just another beetle. This beetle was an ever-evolving riddle. Mm. And one the crow was determined to solve. But before any of this riddle business started, things were much simpler. I'll try to bring you back to the very beginning of their story together. The very first day they met, the beetle was out and about on one of its daily explores, drinking dewdrops that pool on accommodating leaves and gathering sticks that might look like handy reinforcements to the home nest. When the crow spotted the beetle, ever hungry, the crow saw a delicious midday meal in the plump insect. A bit of a show creature, the crow enjoyed making a presentation of its dining conquests. The crow swept in, wings in full swoop and flutter, creating a gust that rose the wee beetle off its front four feet, the final two clutching at the floor. Good day, said the crow. That is, good day for me, for I shall enjoy a juicy beetle feast. Truly, one of my favorites, the crow uttered grandly with a smug beaky smile and then paused for the beetle's reaction. The beetle gently blinked while its clever mind tried to devise a plan to avoid being a snack for the presumptuous crow. Well, uh, that will be just fine, said the beetle agreeably. Indeed, I feel so much better now that most, I would say most, of my terrible sickness has left my body. It said as gently as it did slowly. Fabulous, bellowed the crow. Well, then I... Uh, wait, wait just a moment. Terrible sickness. You mentioned something about it. Terrible sickness in your body? Oh, yes, yes, terrible indeed, quite the horror. I, I'm sure it's nothing and most likely won't interfere with the pleasantness of your meal. And then the beetle looked somber and with a half-scrunched face appeared to be pushing something out of its grand diminutive frame and then looked upward and around. There was no sound, only the suggestion of one. Uh, perhaps some bitter notes, but I doubt it will cause any real significant stomach pain. You mean tummy aches? I do so hate tummy aches, whispered the crow. Oh, yes, yes, stomach pain is also commonly referred to as tummy aches, the beetle said earnestly. Ahem, well, I see said the crow, pretending not to sound disappointed. Rallying, he echoed, But you are feeling much better, you say? Oh, yes, considering how severely this illness announced itself, we can only hope it's gone now and won't come back, the beetle paused. Like last time? Last time? Oh, goodness, yes, smarted the beetle. Out of nowhere, like a fierce ocean wave. Fierce... Ocean wave, embarked the crow so soft as to not incite one. But what is life if not to engage some risk? Lit the beetle. Risk, indeed, mounted the crow. You know, it seems that I too might be suffering from a bit of a, a bug, shall we say. Uh, while I would happily devour you effortlessly at this moment, I'm thinking the better of it. Uh, how's about a rain check? Oh, well, suit yourself, supported the beetle. When you are feeling presently well, simply come calling, and hopefully the hawks won't be sailing around looking for their next meal as well. Hawks? caught the crow. 
such a number of them that do so enjoy this part of the wood, but as danger may be everywhere, we might as well go about our business just the same, and don't you agree? Uh, yes, uh, quite, managed the crow, feeling suddenly so tired and defeat and desperate for a shift, it took to the air before issuing, Until we meet again! Lengthened by the distance as the crow sifted away through the moist, sun-baked air back to its easy nest for a wee contemplation and fast snooze on an empty tongue. Meanwhile, the beetle in a flit jerked back into its nest and in the way of gathering oneself, bounced its breath down to a slow, steady catch of air and took to gazing at itself in a wee mirror made of a piece of broken clear soda bottle. It is very unbecoming of one to lie, the beetle scolded itself, holding its eyes in a cold stare. Indeed, the beetle was not feeling ill at all, and there were no more hawks in this part of the wood than anywhere else. And then the beetle reminded itself that it was also unbecoming to scold oneself. That crow is going to eat me. It would definitely have been unbecoming to be eaten and digested. Though reckoning further, the beetle swung again. Though to lie is to foul against nature, and if scolding oneself fouls also, I should at least attempt to make good on things. But how? The beetle tapped its pincers, thinking, thinking. That crow, how obnoxiously proud! But of course, who can begrudge a spot of hunger? And we all have our favorite flavors, the beetle empathized. I wouldn't doubt beetle being among the best, the beetle conceded humbly. And there's no doubt that the crow's hunger shall return. And then suddenly the beetle erupted. I have just the thing. Like a charge of lightning, it darted to its backyard, where lining the perimeter was literally a self-made fence about which the beetle's own discarded shells shed for its entire life, lay in consecutive order adjacent to one another, forming its own private barrier, circumambulating the wee property. The strong desire to right the wrong of falsehood allowed the beetle to suffer an opening in the enclosure and carefully remove one of the shells, leaving a section open to the wild wood. Eagerly, the beetle shimmied to the stove and applied the oven to an ample swell, and then straight away took to crushing the shell, pestle to mortar. The beetle then reached for jars containing the sweets of maple sap and persimmon, the sour of crab apples and marjoram, and the bitters of walnut and sycamore bark, and mixed the bunch into a potent mass upon which it poured the thick cream of milkweed stock, and stirred it to a puffy quaff, and then transported the batch to a baking tin and added it to the oven, judging the time for three whippoorwill calls. The beetle waited for a spell as the forest considered the evening, and waited, and then it heard the distant happy call. Ah, all done, the beetle exclaimed after checking the pie by inserting its left foreleg, clean as a whistle. The beetle carefully removed the piping hot confection and set it on the edge of the stovetop to cool. Has the crow ever sampled beetle shell pie before? The beetle wondered. The beetle quickly packed up the sweet and savory pie and fastened it to the traveling harness and then the harness to its regal body and followed its extraordinary sense of smell to the crow's roost. Upon arriving, the beetle observed the crow staring blankly through a rhomboid crevice in the hearty sticks of the nest, as if pondering the absurdity of life, until the drag of the beetle's approaching feet startled the crow's head back to face the beetle, whose smile and outstretched legs presented beetle shell pie. The crow jumped upright and towered over the gracious beetle, who confidently ordered the crow to... Sit down, please, and won't you? 
The crow, miffed by such presumption, screeched, Beetle, the nerve to find me at my branch and command me in my nest. Ah, quite the same as you did me, quite, the beetle observed. Ah, um, stammered the crow. And to you I bring food, whereas you would um, take me as food. Isn't that right? I, I, the crow found no words with which to respond. No matter to speak of it. We all do what we must to survive, but wouldn't it be so much better if we were to do so kindly? Yes. Anywho, that is why I'm here today, actually. I am trying to survive the kindest way I can, the beetle said, attempting to sound pleasant, and cleared its wee throat and rescued. Shall you some beetle shell pie? Made from my own shell three springs ago. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. There was a long pause before the crow could speak. Oh, my, dripped the crow slowly, realizing what was happening. So terribly kind. The crow's eyes moistened as its elegant beaks delicately clasped the pie tin and gently transferred it to the table. Please have some, encouraged the beetle. The crow was still in the way of one collecting oneself, and paused further. Won't you join me? requested the crow, hopefully. Oh, no, thank you, said the beetle gently. I must never get too full of myself. It is all for you. I realize you would prefer to have the whole of me, but I am simply not quite that generous of a soul. Oh, dear me, the crow interrupted. I believe you are quite generous indeed, and snatched a morsel of the pie with its long beak. Mmm, fabulous, issued the crow, tilting its noble head from side to side, and continued, Perhaps not quite so fabulous as dining real flesh, something about the juicy parts... The crow went on perhaps too liberally, and upon realizing this, pinched its stout tongue between the tips of its beak to suspend yet another word. Seeing the look in the crow's eye, the beetle determined its work there was done, and started to sashay to the edge of the branch, and offered farewell. Until next time, the beetle called, firming up its harness and scuttling away. Until next... But before the crow could utter full reciprocity, it saw the wee beetle suddenly descended upon by an ornery robin, who nipped the whirlwinded beetle between its beaky clasps and began to lift off when the indignant crow instinctively slapped the air vigorously with its lengthy wings and called a mighty shriek that stunned the robin into releasing his clench. Suspending the beetle in midair for three flaps of the departing robin's wings until the now falling beetle pulled out its seldom used pocket wings and elegantly navigated the tree's upper limbs until the beetle lit safely, not to mention handsomely, on a fat bough several feet below the crow's nest. The crow looked down at the beetle, the beetle stared up at the crow. The crow and the beetle held stare in a shared knowing that theirs was a strange yet special relationship. The beetle tipped its pincers at the crow and began to descend the tree back to its home in the inner nook of the forest. Until next time, called the crow, watching what would have been such a delicious meal simply walk away. The crow thought that despite the beetle's kindness, and despite the crow's own brand of heroism, the crow still wasn't convinced it could repeat such restraint upon their next encounter. Uh, and I shall cross that bridge when I come to it. The crow consoled itself and began feasting upon the beetle shell pie with great delight, with both the crow and the beetle living to see another day.
The Tale of Peter Rabbit by Beatrix Potter Once upon a time, there were four little rabbits, and their names were Flopsy, Mopsy, Cottontail, and Peter. They lived with their mother in a sandbank underneath the root of a very big fir tree. Now, my dears, said old Mrs. Rabbit one morning, you may go into the fields or down the lane, but don't go into Mr. McGregor's garden. Your father had an accident there. He was put into a pie by Mrs. McGregor. Now, run along. Don't get into mischief. I'm going out. Then old Mrs. Rabbit took a basket and her umbrella and went through the wood to the baker's. She bought a loaf of brown bread and five currant buns. Flopsy, Mopsy, and Cottontail, who were good little bunnies, went down the lane together, to gather blackberries. But Peter, who was very naughty, ran straight away to Mr. McGregor's garden and squeezed under the gate. First he ate some lettuces and some French beans, and then he ate some radishes. And then, feeling rather sick, he went to look for some parsley. But round the end of a cucumber frame, whom should he meet but Mr. McGregor? Mr. McGregor was on his hands and knees, planting out young cabbages. But he jumped up and ran after Peter, waving a rake and calling out, Stop thief! But Peter was most dreadfully frightened. He rushed all over the garden, for he had forgotten the way back to the gate. He lost one shoe among the cabbages and the other amongst the potatoes. After losing them, he ran on four legs and went faster, so that I think he might have got away altogether if he had not unfortunately run into a gooseberry net and got caught by the large buttons on his jacket. It was a blue jacket with brass buttons, quite new. Peter gave himself up for lost and shed big tears. But his sobs were overheard by some friendly sparrows, who flew to him in great excitement and implored him to exert himself. Mr. McGregor came up with a sieve, which he intended to pop on the top of Peter, but Peter wriggled out just in time, leaving his jacket behind him. He rushed into the tool shed and jumped into a can. It would have been a beautiful thing to hide in if it had not had so much water in it. Mr. McGregor was quite sure that Peter was somewhere in the tool shed, perhaps hidden underneath a flower pot. He began to turn them over carefully, looking under each. Presently, Peter sneezed, Mr. McGregor was after him in no time and tried to put his foot upon Peter, who jumped out of a window, upsetting three plants. Peter sat down to rest. He was out of breath and trembling with fright. He had not the least idea which way to go. Also, he was very damp with sitting in that can. After a time, he began to wander about, going lippity, lippity, not very fast, and looking all around. He found a door in a wall, but it was locked, and there was no room for a fat little rabbit to squeeze underneath. An old mouse was running in and out over the stone doorstep, carrying peas and beans to her family in the wood. Peter asked her the way to the gate, but she had such a large pea in her mouth she could not answer. She only shook her head at him. Peter began to cry. Then he tried to find his way straight across the garden, but he became more and more puzzled. Presently, he came to a pond where Mr. McGregor filled his water cans. A white cat was staring at some goldfish. She sat very, very still, but now and then the tip of her tail twitched as if it were alive. Peter thought it best to go away without speaking to her. He had heard about cats from his cousin, Little Benjamin Bunny. He went back towards the tool shed, but suddenly, quite close to him, he heard the noise of a hoe. Peter scuttered underneath the bushes, but presently, as nothing happened, he came out and climbed upon a wheelbarrow and peeped over. 
The first thing he saw was Mr. McGregor hoeing onions. His back was turned toward Peter, and beyond him was the gate. Peter got down very quietly off the wheelbarrow and started running as fast as he could go along a straight walk behind some black currant bushes. Mr. McGregor caught sight of him at the corner, but Peter did not care. He slipped underneath the gate and was safe at last in the wood outside the garden. Mr. McGregor hung up the little jacket and the shoes for a scarecrow to frighten the blackbirds. Peter never stopped running or looked behind him till he got home to the big fir tree. He was so tired that he flopped down upon the nice soft sand on the floor of the rabbit hole and shut his eyes. His mother was busy cooking. She wondered what he had done with his clothes. It was the second little jacket and pair of shoes that Peter had lost in a fortnight. I am sorry to say that Peter was not well during the evening. His mother put him to bed and made some chamomile tea, and she gave a dose of it to Peter. One teaspoonful to be taken at bedtime. But Flopsy, Mopsy, and Cottontail had bread and milk and blackberries for supper. I hope you enjoyed our stellar top five episode as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. I'm so glad you could join us today. As always, special thanks to our dear friend Paxton Stanley for his incredible music. Until next time, remember to keep using your imagination and see just how powerful your mind truly is. Goodbye for now. If you enjoy the Planet Storytime podcast and would like to support the show, please click the subscribe button on your podcast player and tell your friends about us. You can also support us with contributions on our Patreon page. Simply go to patreon.com and search for the Planet Storytime podcast. You can also reach out to us with suggestions, requests, and questions by email at planet.storytime.com at gmail.com. Goodbye for now.